Hi, welcome to the Second Rail Education Podcast. My name is John Heinz. I am thrilled today to have Tom Hanley as my guest. Tom is a distinguished member of the faculty of the world's greatest fashion and design school, the Parsons School of Design in New York. He's a professor of marketing and public relations. Most impressively, he's been nominated three times as Distinguished Faculty of the Year. Today, we're going to have a conversation about some of his areas of expertise, including public relations, social media, and online education. He's also an entrepreneur in his own right and an active and influential voice on social media. So, Tom, welcome to Second Rail. Well, thanks, John. I appreciate it. How's everything going with you today? We are good. Really appreciate you working with me on the time because I know the time difference between the U.S. and, and China is significant. So I really appreciate you being flexible with the time. No problem at all. So let's dive right in. Maybe you can start with the joke about the Jew, the Catholic, and the Muslim. So there, <laughs> there were three amazing students that I had um, probably five, six years ago. They used to tell this joke about coming into my class, and they said, a Jew, a Catholic, and a Muslim walk into a PR class. And I was like, wait, you can't say them. Like, it's the three of us. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. So it was someone who's from Serbia, somebody from <laughs> Russia, someone from Israel. I mean, it was like, it's that's what makes Parsons so spectacular is, I think there's 120 different countries represented. That was probably last year. It's probably gone up or down a little bit each year, but it's what makes, I think, teaching in New York and now teaching online so incredible this semester. I've got someone in China, someone in Italy, someone in Lagos, Nigeria. And, you know, it's it's so interesting when you get such a wonderful spectrum of amazing students. Let's talk a little bit about online education because you made the move to that area and you've been a, something of a pioneer, not only in the content you're delivering, but also in breadth of international students that Parsons can attract. So tell me a little bit about what you think beyond the kind of, you know, we know what the standard advantages of online are, which are the asynchronous communications and the kind of ever and always available nature of classes. Tell me a little bit about what you've learned about online education that really works and maybe doesn't work. Well, it's all about the content you can deliver. Not everybody is born to be an online educator. Distributed education is something where you really have to understand the mind of the student. And I think that's something that not everybody gets. They do not understand how it needs to be set up. And I'll be really honest. The first probably two semesters, I would say four or five years ago, that I taught on campus and additionally online, I don't think I really got that part of it. And so now I work with an amazing woman that is the associate director of distributed education at the new school. Her name is Shira, and she is truly beyond, beyond, beyond. So when you can be set up with a format that allows you to have great organization and allows you then to have the content that you know is the way in which you teach. Yeah, talk about that. Sure. 
So I think my, I always like to be slightly corny. So when I do my lectures, if it's a, a great PowerPoint with a voiceover, I make sure that all the imagery that I embed into the PowerPoints are very current and very relevant. A class that I'm teaching on consumer behavior, which is one that I'm doing right now, making sure that everything is really engaging to the student. If it's some lackluster, dopey imagery, in addition to all the written content that then my voiceovers, I really make sure that, like I said, my images are strong. The imagery is so on point. But then when I'm delivering it, I often share a human story that maybe it's something from one of my former employers at Ralph Lauren. That was a place I spent nine years. So I will mention something about that or my hashtag obsession <laughs> with shoes. I am obsessed with shoes and backpacks. And so I recorded a lecture last evening and I would always refer back to like, Hi, my name is Tom, and I have a footwear problem. Um, and, and uh, you know, when you can, you know, get them to laugh, then all of a sudden you're really delivering content that is not only, you know, on point with the topic, the subject matter, but that you're really resonating with their laughter, that you're hoping to make them laugh because if they laugh, they'll remember and they will learn. So tell me a little bit about how you leverage the international, the breadth of students that you have to your advantage in a way that probably you could never do with a face-to-face course. Well, I think it's not that you can't do it with a face-to-face course. It's just that my classes are only 15 people and online it's only 15. So it makes the new school one of the top schools in the U.S., if not the world, for small class sizes. And when you can sit at a long conference table and not be stuck at desks, you can really just engage with them so much. And so I know that online, they are, as you mentioned, um, asynchronous connection with the content or every once in a while I will do a live class, but because of the challenges of time zone. You can't always do a a live class, but everyone is there because they want to be there. No one's taking this course because, oh, I'm in school and I need to take this course. No, that's what I love is when you get to a certain level of education, people want to be there. So the first thing I do, I do a video and say, hi, everyone, it's Tom. And, you know, I'm so excited that to have you in my class this semester. And I go on for only about like four or five minutes. And then I ask the same of them. <laughs> I want them and I want them to include, you know, where in the world that they reside, where they're from originally, sort of some interesting, fun things that we might not think of and learn about them so that we get to understand a little bit about their their personality. And so with that, I do understand that I, I listen so much to what they say and I take notes on who all these different people are and where they're from and where they live. And Mm -hmm. it allows me to utilize my corny sense of humor, Midwestern corny sense of humor, 
to be able to really connect with them because I know there's at a point going on in the semester, probably in about two or three more weeks, where I have one-on-one Skype sessions with them. And when you understand, like with you and I, we're on different time zones, obviously around the globe from one another, but so that we can really understand who they are. Like, are they working at this time? Why are they taking the course? And when I can deliver some fashion humor, they get it. And they then, they're like, oh, I can't wait for the next lecture. I'm like, what is he going to say this time? Or, oh, oh, that's something I would say. Oh, great. So they really do connect and it really does resonate. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about the content that you're teaching. You mentioned you're doing a consumer behavior course, and I know that you're kind of one of the experts in the world on public relations, and your approach to it is really distinct. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what you're teaching. Sure. Um, So the semester with consumer behavior course, it's fashion consumer behavior versus product consumer goods. So there is a real difference. Mm -hmm. I'm loving the textbook that I'm able to use with the students. It's called The Why of the Buy. And it's, it is really great. And I've, I've taught consumer behavior in the past. And it's something that I really am passionate about because it is something that affects everyday life, the decisions that we make. However, mm-hmm. we don't always think about what are those decision processes that we go through that help inform the products that we choose to buy for ourselves or as gifts. So that's, that's really interesting. I do love that. Public relations, yes. I've been a publicist and continue to be a publicist and lots of consulting, but the way I teach it specifically is press facing. So mm-hmm. meaning that we are geared and focused on having teaching PR from a standpoint of publicist to editor and how, what that entails. So explain that. Sure. If we really are looking at press facing, so engaging with editors who are at the key top magazines through Mm -hmm. the U.S. We focus on U.S. publications, on their web-delivered content, newspapers, blogs, whatever it might Mm -hmm. be, other media outlets. I do a wonderful project which students are working on now called Anatomy of a Magazine. Mm -hmm. And every student is assigned a different publication, and they've got to learn all about the publication. And there's so much information that's available provided by the publisher in in their media kit, they get to really understand who the reader is. And I think everyone thinks magazines are all the same. When you're at a certain age, you think, oh, Vogue is the same as Bizarre. Oh, it's the same woman. Well, no, it's not. And when they get to understand who the consumer is, that the Vogue reader is younger, she's less affluent. And the reason why she's less affluent is because the age range is significantly younger. There's girls and boys who are reading Vogue from age Mm -hmm. 16 and and up, where the Harper's Bazaar woman is more 35 to 60. And she's definitely um, making more Mm -hmm. money. Her household income is significantly more 
Like we're talking from the difference of Vogue maybe being 63,000 household income to maybe Bizarre is like 120,000. Wow. wow. So like double. So I always ask, what would you rather have? A placement in Vogue for your client or a placement in Bazaar? And then I always answer, I would like both because then you're hitting two different demographics. I like to think of it that way. So they learn about the publication first. Then the next step is they really look at social media. What are all the different social media platforms? Mm -hmm. And they look at how many followers or likes or subscribers, whatever the platform is. That way then towards the end of the project, which is a number of weeks away, they can then capture that number and realize, okay, there's been an increase in six weeks of 2%. And 2%, if you've got 2.7 million followers on mm-hmm. Instagram, mm-hmm. that you're, that you're saying that's a, that's a nice increase. So let's talk about that. That's the intersection that I really wanted to get to, which is you know public relations has at least the term sounds kind of old and staid and respectable and established. And social media sounds like this free-for-all wild west of what's going on and how do we do it? How do you effectively merge the two in a way that gets that is you know implementable for the average student? Great question. So the way I teach public relations is I define it, first of all, in my first lecture, that it's about establishing and maintaining mutually beneficial relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that that in my course, and particularly to publicists as well as, let's say, fashion media outlets, Mm You've got a client. Let's say the client is Montclair. Montclair wants placement about all their outerwear and all the other amazing products that they represent. Well, every editor has a need for great content. So that is that mutually beneficial. What's good for one is good for another. And I think that teaching it from a truly idea of pitching stories What's newsworthy? Just because someone wakes up in the morning doesn't mean it's hashtag I woke up like this, um, <laughs> which is trending down. FYI, it is not as uh, popular as it once was two years sure. ago, three years ago. But if you really think about um, pitching a story and and something that truly is newsworthy that would resonate with the readers of a given publication through the eyes of that editor. That's great. Now, going on to to social media. Social media, the message is very much controlled by the publication. There's no one adapting it, spinning it. So it's direct. So unfortunately, there are people that use Twitter and they use it ineffectively. I won't name <laughs> names. Um, but, many of um, them. There are a few billion of them, yeah. I think. But right. Okay. But I think there's one particular uh, leader of the free world, per se, that uh-huh. um, uses it in a very inappropriate <laughs> way. Hashtag yes. fake news. But I think that if we can deliver content to where the person that's really engaging with the content, that's where they go to. Their go-to is they open Instagram 30 to 100 times a day to mm-hmm. to um, engage with that, that, that content. Mm-hmm. That's that point. And if you can, through key influencers, 
say it's a menswear brand that does men's footwear, going back to my shoe issue. Um, and you've got, you know, 10 great influencers who are mm-hmm. wearing the shoes and they're doing Instagram posts and Instagram stories, great promotional giveaways. It really reads as authentic. And I think mm-hmm. that everyone understands that people do give things away, but when it comes from an influencer that you value. Talk about the influencers a little bit, because that's a phenomenon that has been growing and is obviously the all the rage now, and to the extent that that's who, quite frankly, most people are following. Talk about how that phenomena in your mind plays out and its significance. Sure. So there are micro-influencers, which are thought of to have somewhere below 50,000 followers. And then there's influencers that are 50,000 and above. And sometimes if you look at someone who might only have 8,000 followers, but their engagement is at like 90%, meaning that if they've got 8,000 followers and they're getting close to maybe 7,000 likes for a post and they're getting hundreds and hundreds of comments, that micro-influencer is so, so impactful when you're looking at uh, promoting your brand. Now, what's promoting your brand? Well, if you think of what promotion is, it's about informing persuading and reminding about mm-hmm. goods or services that are available. And I really mm-hmm. think about inform, persuade, remind is really, really key. So if you go to someone a little bit bigger, I would not be the type of person who would want, I won't even say their last name, but it begins with a K. <laughs> One of those um, sisters yep. uh, that are... Who used to live next to Kathy, Kathy Griffin, who I just found out about the other yes, day. Did, yes, lives next to yes, Kathy. Absolutely. Didn't know that until the other absolutely. day. Oh, that was great. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and she really thought like the, that uh, Kathy and, Ka- and Kanye were like. Who knew? <laughs> right. I know. Who knew? They're both from Chicago. Uh-huh. FYI. Uh-huh. Kanye and Kathy. Fantastic so coincidence. Yep. Right. Right. But I think if you, I wouldn't use them uh, promoting a uh, a brand and other than mm. maybe their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you think of going back to that shoe brand mm-hmm. and they want to get those shoes on really cool dudes who are anywhere from a micro-influencer mm-hmm. to someone that might have maybe Four hundred thousand followers. Mm-hmm. If you can place that product over and over again in the mind of the consumer, who will hopefully be purchasing that online or in mm-hmm. store, that is so key. And if you think about ways that you're selecting your influencers, so there's a big business right now. One of the people that I know is a, a mm-hmm. Parsons grad. She has what's called an influencer casting agency. Mm-hmm. So she represents probably wow. 20 of the top fashion influencers in the U.S. I know that this number is absolutely staggering, that this young man, 25 years old, whose girlfriend is a phenomenal photographer, so she shoots him 
everywhere and anywhere all over the world. He won't look at a project for less than 30,000. Wow. wow. So I know at 25 years old, he is making close to a million dollars. So Tom, talk about the intersection of that work, getting your brand online, doing the public relations and the social media outreach in terms of just kind of the effect on the average viewer and the kind of quantitative and data aspects of this. How much are you dealing with algorithms, machine learning, artificial intelligence? I mean, So traditionally, good public relations was about, again, and continues to be, the relationships with the editors that you are trying to get coverage of your particular brand or many brands that you might represent. And that that's always going to remain. I know that I'm not sending them online pitches to editors that I know. I'm going to be sending them a text like saying, hey, what's up? Are you available for coffee next week? Uh-huh. It's great. Or hey, let's jump on Skype. I got a whole bunch of things to tell you about. Sure. So that is always going to remain. Now, moving on to how social media really has influenced that, Mm -hmm. I know that editors do look at key influencers and what those influencers are mentioning some of the brands that they're having paid collaborations with. Um, I think that you can't have, I really look at the, what I call the promotional mix for a brand. And the promotional mix can be every, anything from public relations, social media, runway shows, visual merchandising. If you look at, I'm going to only do all one or all the other, that's absolutely wrong. Mm. I always say to students, let's look at a way that we can balance out your promotional activities, be it from traditional PR to, um, there's a whole term we'll get into either this time or next time if we're together again, peso, which is a whole big thing that's like, it's hard to, it's not hard to explain, it just takes a little while. (laughs) But if you think of being able to do traditional PR, influencer Mm -hmm. marketing, Mm-hmm. To be able to have a balance, a range, that's the way you're going to engage with a typical consumer, be they male, female, be they young or old, uh, U.S.-based or globally-based. And I think that we do need to look at everything from you know from SEO to all the other analytics that are available. And there's in-app analytics that you can get if you are a, a brand that's on Instagram. Mm-hmm. They have really made it so easy to have all those in-app analytics that you can look at every day yourself, Mm -hmm. that you can screen grab and send them to your client, um, screen grab and have an influencer send them to you, and you maybe pass them on to the client. Mm -hmm. So things have definitely changed. Because I want to ask you about your personal brand. I know that you have a personal brand that goes beyond your professional work that you've curated online pretty thoroughly and you're, it's pretty easy to see that you're, you're out there. So I'm wondering how much of what you're talking about relating to brands applies to personal brands and how much you, maybe your students or maybe people who are interested in working on their personal brands would find this type of stuff useful. So let's split this down the middle a little bit. 
I have a brand that I, not just my personal brand, Tom Handley, but I started uh, an Instagram account that I will not mention at this time <laughs> that I grew exponentially. And what's the nice thing about that is I'm able to apply and try different things, different techniques, work with different brands to promote those brands. And uh. in, in a sense, grow my own brand. I can then try things out that then really work or I might see other people doing it and I'm going to implement that, then I can use that to teach students. Got it. And when you can say, so I know um, I haven't pulled back the curtain on that brand to my Parsons students, but to another program that I teach in Florence, Italy, a school called Polymoda, an amazing, amazing mm -hmm. school, number eight in the world for, for fashion, number one in Italy. Mm -hmm. So I'm very, very blessed in that sense. Mm -hmm. And I definitely have pulled back the curtain and let them see everything. And I do a full-on lecture talking about being able to have a constant message, being very consistent. Well, how do I analyze and how do I look at things? How do I do brand partnerships? And I think everything is really interesting. I think those brand partnerships, getting those, if you're working with, let's say, a great shoe brand, one of my favorite shoes out there, I've been wearing them since I've been 22, sort of on and off, Cole Haan. Uh -huh. Love the brand. I have a, yeah, I love the brand. Real, I have like it's crazy in Nike, yeah. out of Nike, something like that. At some time, yeah. I remember that's yeah. that's the dominant story yep. in my in my very short anecdotal yep. history of it. Absolutely. Well, and I think what's interesting is a pair arrived this morning. I'm thrilled with the brand. So let's mm -hmm. say that brand, and they want to position a hundred different pair of shoes to male influencers. Well, they definitely can be very picky and choosy. They might give it product away to the influencers or they might pay influencers. And I have no idea what they do. But mm -hmm. I do know that if you're seeing launches of fashion brands, a new season, a new product category, etc., mm -hmm. and that's being done via social media, and you're saying that it is driving sales. Now, social media isn't directly linked to sales, okay. nor is public relations. But now we are seeing some direct correlation when you can white dot tag that, uh -huh. that particular item. And you can say this, click right. here on the white button, and you can purchase that with one click. Now they've changed in-app purchasing that changed Yesterday, yeah, ago, right. I feel like ago. it was yesterday. yesterday. I feel like that was news. Uh, yeah. This in the last in the last news cycle, very very um, recently. So I think that by again that that promotional mix, that promotional all those activities that we look at looked at just a few minutes ago, that balance of traditional PR to social media influencer marketing, other platforms, YouTube. YouTube is really so important because I call it fashionainment, fashion entertainment. Mm -hmm. Whatever people want to do, if it's a quick 
video and why they can be monetized on. Right. So give me a picture of your ideal students, the person who perhaps hasn't yet made committed to either getting a degree that would that would end up getting them in your class or getting them getting going down path that would be into working with you. Uh, but if they did, they would get incredible value from it. Like, what's the? Give me a picture of like what kind of a student would that be, or who is the who is the person who would most benefit, and probably hasn't thought about how they most benefit from what you're offering. So it varies a little bit, but I'll give you a little case study of um, an actual former student. In the past, I've placed over around 500 people in internships, about 300 in actual jobs and got two people visas to the U.S., which is really Yes, especially today. I know, right? I will give you an example. His name is Kevin. Kevin's incredible. His undergrad was in marketing. He's originally from the Philippines, worked in corporate world in in consumer product goods. He then uh, knew that that after being there probably two to three years, knew that that wasn't for him did a great in-depth postgraduate course in France, I believe in luxury marketing, okay. and then decided he wanted to get a degree in fashion marketing and chose Parsons. Mm. Kevin um, did what's a program called Fast Track, and so he can finish the entire degree program in about a year, maybe a year, a little bit more, Mm -hmm. based on an internship. Kevin really benefited by being inquisitive. When you've got that inquisitive nature that's innate, you are going to really succeed. He had all the basics. He was a strong writer. He was strong background in marketing. He was Cal genius. He's applying now to MBA programs. Kevin took and I got him a job with a great menswear brand and worked for the menswear brand for about two years, working for all their online activities as well as doing their analytics. And then he decided that he wanted to get a little bit more experience. So he left that brand and went to work for another phenomenal brand that I got him that job also. Mm -hmm. And He really learned, he took everything that he learned in job one after he graduated and was able to apply it then to job two. What I'll say is he learned so much. It's a brand that has gotten a little shy of $20 million in, in investments. So they're doing great things. They've got stores, probably five brick and mortar stores. Their online sales are really what's driving profits. So the company that he left loved him so much, they brought him back. Uh, they they pursued him and said, hey, we want you to come back. Now he's got the skills he mm-hmm. learned, the skills he learned in, in job one, then job two, and then the changes that have happened so quickly And with such momentum in this day and age that we're we're living in, he now is doing so incredibly well. So I think you need to be inquisitive. Does it help that Mm -hmm. you are a great um, writer, strong marketing background? You might come from another field. Um, I've had people that were from 
healthcare fields. Mm-hmm. I had a, a young young man. I thought he was really really young, and he said that uh, he mm-hmm. had a background in medicine. Wow! I was like, oh, interesting. Well, then come to find out that wonderful young man was a surgeon who then board of medicine and went to Harvard for an huh. MBA. Wow. And then went to work for Goldman in London. And when the downturn in the economy, he decided uh-huh. to go to Parsons and get an additional degree, not that he needed anymore, but an additional degree in fashion marketing. He is brilliant. So there's different ways, there's different routes, there's different backgrounds that someone can come into Parsons and truly succeed. But I do believe that being able to be inquisitive and being able to take an internship. This young man took an internship. He's a former surgeon, Harvard MBA, and he's an intern. Phenomenal because he learned. And I think that to me is that being inquisitive. Well, this is great, Tom. Thank you so much for doing this. I could talk to you for hours. I love hearing about what you're doing and about your approach to it. Well, I'm so glad to be connected with you. And I think that hopefully we will talk again in the near future. Next time we get together, we're definitely going to talk about that diversity of experience and the value of it because you've hit on it repeatedly throughout this conversation. So I'm really looking forward to that. We'll do it soon. So thanks again. Awesome. My pleasure. Have a great day. Take care. I want to thank my guests. Thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank Mary Heinz for doing the editing, Ted Enley for doing the music that starts and ends the podcast. And I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any ideas for the podcast, I am just getting going and would love to hear feedback from you. If you would like to reach out to me, I'm easily available on Twitter, on the website, secondrail.com. And you can certainly email me as well at johnheinz at gmail.com. I hope you will join me again in a fortnight for more conversation about education and where it's going. 